to the Legal Technology Review Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. As always, I'm Brian Folk, the host, civil litigator, and author of The Cyber Advocate. And today we are talking, well, we're talking about an interesting way to approach a jury trial. And we're talking with Sean Dennett and Peter Mansman of Precise, Inc. And we're talking about the product Predict. Um, first, I want to remind everybody that you can follow us on your favorite podcast app or just you know go ahead over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Feel free to share as often as possible now that I've gone through that necessary portion. I want to welcome both of my guests today, Mr. Sean Denn and Mr. Peter Mansman. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Now, I want to start with, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about Predict, but tell me a little bit about your, your company, Precise. Yeah, so uh, Precise, we are um, a 15-year-old litigation technology support company. Um, we're pretty much a full services litigation support company, meaning that we help our clients anywhere from the collection of evidence, and we have a strong forensics team all the way up through the presentation of that evidence at trial, um, and pretty much everything in between. So uh, we specialize in video services, um, don't really do any court reporting, but um, work with a lot of court reporting companies to do lots of interactive deposition work. Um, all, all kinds of pre-trial work, video settlements, uh, settlement videos, um, and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, we're always looking for ways. Uh, we've, we've been around for 15 years, and we specialize in working with small to mid-sized law firms. Um, and we're always looking for ways to bring technology solutions to bear to, to, to them, basically so they can, um, you know, operate on a level playing field with some of their adversaries. You know, obviously some of these larger firms have much more resources and everything, and I think technology tends to scare people a lot. Um, they tend to think that there's always a high cost associated uh, when using technology, and quite frankly, that that's kind of the opposite in certain scenarios, and that's kind of where we specialize in. We, uh, we focus on that group, and we work closely with them, and um, we help them level the playing field. I was going to say, it's, it's a shame, I think, that so many... Uh small and mid-sized firms think that technology has to be expensive when in reality the democratization of technology over the past 15 years has been remarkable. Before you'd have to pay for even enterprise systems, Microsoft Word used to be much more expensive for the, just the basic services provided when you can get all of your basic document processing for free. You don't get all the, you know, the advanced features, but most people don't necessarily use those. And if you're looking to level a playing field, you don't need to have those super high-end tools. There's a lot of things that you can that you can do for low cost. And I'd say the the unfortunate thing that I've you know in my experience is that where the legal industry is lacking at the small to mid-sized firm level is actually in companies like yours. It's it's the technology services company. So it's it's definitely good to see a, a company uh, serving that market. Yeah, and I, I mean to your point about you know the the. Google Docs and the free applications out there. Even look what Microsoft has done over the past several years. They've essentially switched their business model. They're giving away their office licensing. And you know, if you would have looked on a balance sheet years ago, you you would think that's crazy, right? But they're essentially giving away their office licensing to get subscribers to be part of the Microsoft Cloud. And that's that's their part. You know, that's their play at the cloud grab. Um, so th so they sacrificed that revenue, but now it's coming in on a recurring model. You know, maybe not the exact same revenue that they were getting, but now they have the opportunity, now that you're in Office 365, oh, by the way, add on this, add on that, you know, and you kind of just get into that and you start using that, that becomes your everyday workflow. So actually pretty smart move by Microsoft in my, my book. One thing I think is interesting about your company is, is it's not that common from what I've seen for companies to have both what I would consider to be trial recording and presentation 
capabilities, which is a lot of what you're talking about with the video and, and in graphical things like that, as well as doing e-discovery. Why, why did you decide to combine those two? Well, since Pete heads up our e-discovery, I'm going to uh, pass that over to him. It's because uh, my partners uh, were bound and determined to get me out of trial, so I had to have something to do. <laughs> what now, drew we, you to e-discovery? Well, you know, we had we started off as a trial services company um, originally, and you know, back in the day in, in 2000 when we started doing this, there wasn't a whole lot of competition or people that were offering those services. So we were getting involved in bigger and bigger cases, and um, along with bigger cases came bigger databases. And along with bigger databases came the complexities with managing large data sets. And so managing those large data sets sort of got us into the world of summation concordance back then and then drove us further into um, building those databases. And so we, we sort of morphed into that by the fact that it was being requested out of our trial clients. And timing-wise, it was just right that, um, you know, we were ready to do that uh, right when the whole e-discovery explosion sort of came on the scene. That's interesting. You almost, you almost kind of backed into e-discovery. That's not something that I would think most companies most companies do. So you, you, you had developed the capabilities almost on accident. Yeah, my whole life is backing into things, so I'm, I'm pretty good at that. But uh, no, it, yeah, it was one of those things where a lot of our business, including this, this Predict product that we're going to talk about today, is driven by very defined requests and needs that we're hearing from our client. And, um, you, you know, we've, we've sort of always kept our ears open to what people are saying are challenges for them along the way. Um, and that's, that's really led to some of the best products and service offerings that we have out there. Yeah, I don't think too many companies have ever gone horribly wrong actually listening to their customers. Um, <laughs> uh, Sean, you're the CEO. Peter, you're the president. I, just uh, you know, before we talk, I really do want to get into talking about this product, but I'd, I'd just love to hear from each of you how you came into this particular you know, part of the industry. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm I'm the uh, main responsible one for for getting us into this. I I I went to law school. I uh, I'm a law school by uh, a lawyer by education. I don't practice, however. But when I got out of law school, my dad had a small plaintiffs practice out here in the Pittsburgh area where I'm based, and we had a large case against a, a large firm. And the only way we were going to have a chance in this case was to use some technologies, both in the trial presentation and in the document organization side of things. So, you know, my dad looked at me and said, you you look young enough to figure this stuff. Go figure it out. So I did, and um, we lost the case, but uh, it uh, went through pretty efficiently and smoothly. And the lawyer on the other side of that case said, wow, that really worked well. Would you do a case for me? Uh, I did. And the lawyer on the other side of that case said, wow, that worked really well. Would you do a case for me? And, and I did. And I'm not the smartest man in the world, but uh, I figured I was on to something by the time that uh, a couple people had uh, paid attention to what was going on. And, um, you know, over, over the years, I think that, that what we've gotten really good at is understanding, um, and it's sort of a blend of all the different pieces that we have in our business. Um, it's made us really understand, you know, the way people communicate and digest information and, and the way that they get data today uh, is very different than it was 16 years ago, and it's a, it's a constant moving target. Um, I just did a presentation this morning, and one of, the, one of the points I was making about it was that, you know, people spend 11 hours a day on average now on some type of multimedia forum, TV, radio, whatever it might be. So when you go into a trial, you know, they are so bored, so astounded at how inefficient and slow this whole process is that, um, you know, they, they can't believe that, that this is the way it works. And, and so you have to cater to that sort of 
way of, of gathering information along the way, and I, it's something we've really you know kept our eye on over the years. It's funny that you mentioned that because I literally I literally just finished this morning the last of my edits of a manuscript for CLE that I'm putting on in June. Essentially, of you know, I was given a fairly open-ended topic. It was talk about technology and trial. I'm like, all right, how many weeks you need? Um, you know, I could talk about that for quite a long time. Um, but of course, the worst part about that is actually writing the transcript for it because I'm saying, well, I can demonstrate this forever. Um, but I'm also I'm a writer, so I don't I'm not writing technical manuals. It ends up being a nice nice wordy description of how everything works. But I think that the the fundamentals are people are used to getting information a certain way, and unless you are very good, and I've seen very good use no technology. My my former mentor one of North Carolina's best trial lawyers. I've seen him give a, give a close that I can't identify the technology on the other side that you could have used to beat it. But nowadays, trial lawyers are getting so much less experience in trial. you got to give people information the way they're used to getting it. Otherwise, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, nothing beats great facts. So if you have those, uh, it's, it's easy to tell your story. But the one thing we hear all the time is that you know people are very impatient. And tension spans are, are getting shorter with the more access we have to information at our fingertips, you know. And people want want to be have, have that instant access to information. They don't want to waste time. And I think, to me, that's the biggest factor is that, um, you know, when you're in there with the trial, it's not just about flash and pomp. Um, it's more about being very efficient in the way you present a lot of evidence quickly. If you can do that, you have a, a much better shot at winning. So, Sean, how did you get into this mess? So yeah, I'm actually from I'm from the other side. So uh, well, I, I studied business finance in school, and I uh, was convinced I was going to be a hotshot Wall Street Wall Street stockbroker, and then decided I wasn't going to do that. And uh, I was always uh, fascinated with technology and computers and networking and IT support and stuff, and kind of a hobbyist in that. So um, went on, took some courses in that, and decided to to go that as a career path. And uh, actually, before joining Precise, I, I used to manage a a pretty large company where we worked with primarily only the AM Law 100 firms. Um, we would do remote technology setups for AM Law 100 firms. So basically, Apple suing Samsung, you have to put 100 lawyers in a hotel somewhere. We would go in and, and basically, you know, outfit three floors of the hotel, put techs on site, help support them, and essentially a roadie crew for law firms. So, um, so war room support and everything like that. So, um, so I kind of came to Precise with uh, with the other other side of, of the law, if you will. And I remember years ago talking to Pete and he's like, yeah, you know, he's like, we're, we're built on the fact that, you know, everybody calls and fights and competes for that top 2% of the market. I'm perfectly happy taking the, the other 98%. And that really resonated with me. And, um, you know, just seeing, you know, what works in big law and, and what doesn't work and some of the inefficiencies and, and stuff like that helps us to apply that to, to, you know, smaller law firms and, and help give them an advantage. So, uh, Kind of, kind of seen it from both sides of the spectrum. Thanks for listening to the Legal Technology Review podcast. More coming up next. You're listening to the Legal Technology Review on the Cyber Advocate. Don't forget to check out all the latest tools and technology for legal service professionals at www.thecyberadvocate.com. So tell me... What made you guys decide to go into the Predict product line? What what tell our listeners what Predict does? So so Predict is uh, basically bringing the science and the history of statistics um, and psychological profiling, if you will, or the understanding of of the way 
populations respond to fact patterns. It's been used for a long time in political polling and, and focus groups for product launches and things like that, and taking that scientific approach and applying it to the jury scenario. Now, and it's the same basic process, which is you're trying to understand what message is going to best resonate with a group of people and what types of people are going to resonate to this message versus that one. And at the end of the day, and I found this you know, very interesting in working with, with our group on PREDICT, is that um, you know, we all fall into four basic personality types. And if you look at Myers-Briggs testing, which shows personality types, they have 16 points, but they're four factors of, of four personality types. And when you boil it all down to us, we all fall into these, these basic categories. And so people in those personality types tend to view things very simil similarly. And you can have some variance on them, but the point behind all of it is that if you can present information in a controlled way to the right representative groups of various personality types that you are going to run across anywhere, you have a highly predictive model for how any general population is going to react to a particular set of facts. And so predict is the idea of let's take this science, let's take this approach, let's take this, this controlled mechanism and leverage that in a way to give some data and input to, to attorneys to make decisions on their case. They don't throw their knowledge away at the door. They don't, you know, um, uh, just take what, what predict comes up with as gospel, it's, but it's more data points for them to help make decisions on behalf of their client. And it's a much more efficient and cost-effective way of doing it than, say, focus groups and mock jury. So what, what made you guys decide that this was a, a, an area or even a product that you wanted to focus on? Again, I think, you know, largely driven by requests from our clients. You know, we, we would hear, you know, for instance, boy, you know, focus group was valuable. Um, it was great to see some feedback, but, you know, it was really expensive, and it took so much of my time. And the second one was probably the biggest critical factor, which is it was so time-consuming to put on that there was really a limited number of cases that could benefit from it. And I, don't, yeah, I, don't, I don't actually even know of that many cases outside of major, big dollar, big, big dollar cases, primarily in federal court with, with law firms that you could almost think, you almost expect that they could draw you know, mock juries out of their own workforce and have a pretty diverse population because of how big these firms are. I don't see many firms outside of that group even, even contemplating because their clients simply can't afford it. Right. And the data that you can get out of these are so valuable, but it's just, again, from a cost and time perspective, is, is put it out of reach for all but the most complicated or high-value type of cases. And, you know, I would, you know, people always have this question, well, you know, how can you trust the science? And, you know, they get real sort of weirded out behind the idea that, oh, well, this is newfangled and, you know, how, how can I put, put faith in this? And the, the reality is, I mean, this process has been used since the Civil War. And there's not, a ma there's not a major decision that a corporation, that an organization, that a nonprofit, that the government makes without running these kind of uh, programs across major, you know, decision points. And the other thing I always talk to attorneys about is say, look, you go home at the end of the day and sit around the, the dinner table and ask your family what they think about this case. Why? Why do you do that? Because getting feedback is important and getting, getting perspectives are important. And a mock jury, a focus group, all those things are just perspectives that, that allow you to understand uh, what other people may be thinking about a fact pattern that you've lived with for such a long time that you may be missing yeah. points at that. And this is just a controlled Yeah, when you're dealing with a, when you're dealing with a case, that you, uh, it's, it's like when you're writing something and you, there's something that's in your head the entire time when you're writing it and you, 
someone reads it and they're saying, what the hell are you talking about here? It's like, well, there's this premise. I say, well, you didn't say that anywhere in metric because you, get, you get so tied in with it. Tell me, how does PREDICT work? What exactly does it do to come up with the results advice that you give? So basically, there's a, there's a couple of key steps um, that, that we go through. And um, it's, it's very systematic, so it's very repeatable. Um, but basically, you know, it starts out with a, a attorney developing a, a narrative about this. You know, so first and foremost, I have to determine what it is that I want to measure. You know, sometimes it's, it's important to know um, how people are going to react to a very specific issue. So they want to narrow their narrative down to be about that specific issue. Or, or sometimes it could even be, hey, I want to know, you know, if I were to introduce this witness or I were to introduce this expert, does that make a big dramatic change in my case? Is that even worth pursuing for me? So that's something that they're going to want to do kind of like a split test, if you will. So That sounds to me like one of, potentially one of the most useful, <laughs> most useful things you could get out of it because there are a lot, of, a lot of attorneys I know who really need some help on deciding which witnesses they're going to use. Well, absolutely. You know, and, and, and I mean, there's, you know, and we'll get into some of the other ways that this can be applied a little bit later. But, um, you know, so, so basically once we have the narrative put together, uh, we send that out to, to what's basically called a group of readers. Okay, so these readers are professional readers. Um, they represent the different uh, demographics and personality profiles that Pete were talking about, was talking about earlier. And they essentially go through and they highlight what they feel are the key facts and the key issues. And basically, this is just a validation step. So this is just for the attorneys to then get that feedback and say, okay, so my narrative represents what it is that I'm trying to, uh, to put out. Um, and then from there... Issue spotting to make sure that what they're communicating is what they intent or what they actually want communicated. Basically, yeah. And, and just make sure there's no key issues that are being missed or or something is really jumping out at somebody and the attorney's like, well, no, I, I don't want them to focus on that. You know, why does that keep coming? Um, so once that feedback is compiled, uh, we work with them and then we come up with the survey questions. Okay, so, you know, specifically, you know, what about the narrative or are they looking, you know, do they want to know what people think in terms of the potential case valuation? Do they want to know, hey, I, I think this person's lying. I think this doctor did this or whatever it might be, you know. So they'll come up with, you know, a set of, I think it varies, Pete, probably anywhere from, you know, 10 to 30 survey questions um, that, that might get put out. And then essentially what happens next is it gets put out to this to these groups. Uh, we call them Delphi groups. It gets put out to these groups that are going to complete this survey. A uh, couple things about that. One, you know, it is completely anonymous. So some of the feedback that we get, you know, outside of the yes or no or, you know, rate this one, two, three, four, or five, um, we always put comments section. And comments sometimes are what's most valuable to the attorneys. Oh, yeah. This is unfiltered feedback. You know, there, there is no holding back. This is, this is a keyboard warrior on Facebook, you know, that, that's making all their political posts or doing whatever, and they feel very comfortable behind the confines of their keyboard. Um, so well, it's, it's why it's why the uh, it's the, whole, the whole college professor thing. It's they're great when you get to learn from them. They're dangerous when you're evaluated by them, which is what makes them effective. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, so we get that. So basically, it comes back in from all these different groups, and uh, the next part is probably the most important part of the whole process, and that's where we we start to do the statistical modeling and the analysis, um, mainly looking for you know, big variations in, in what the responses were. So did a certain group respond differently? And, and you know, was it so different that we're going to go further into that group to ensure that that's statistically valid? Because as everybody knows, you know, there's a certain size set that will prove that something's statistically valid, but that's not tremendously large. You know, it doesn't have to be tremendously large. Um, so then they'll go back and, and they'll really dive in and look for those. Um, and then basically then everything's compiled into a report 
And finally, you know, we deliver that report to the client. We always set up a time to, to speak with them and talk through it. Um, and we go through, and you know, obviously a lot of it's self-explanatory, but certain things like you know, big variations in a certain population pool or big variations um, in how people responded to something like, you know, in, in some cases there was one where, you know, people of lower education, lower income really agreed with what the doctor's approach was and agreed with that, whereas people with higher income, higher education disagreed with the insurance company, you know, so it's, you know, you can start to, to look for those and you can start to see and I, I think, you know, from that, you know, number one, you, you know what your potential jury pool is going to look like in whatever jurisdiction you're in. So, so you know what you're going to have to be aware of and what you might have to avoid. Um, and I think that can help you down the road when you're looking at jury selection as well, if it goes all the way to trial. Um, but, you know, to be honest with you, like most cases, a lot of these things are, are helping driving settlements too. So um, I had one person tell me they were from a big insurance company and it's like, hey, listen, we have a, a $2 million policy limit. And this case is worth that, we're just going to settle for $2 million. That's what the policy limit is. Um, but I don't know if this case is worth $10 million or $50,000. So I'm inclined to settle for the $2 million, but there's something inside of me saying I really have to know if that's the right number to settle on. And, you know, so if I run one of these and it comes back, everyone thinks that we're going to be on the hook for 5 or $10 million, done. You know, I settle tomorrow. He's like, but if it's coming in significantly lower than that, then, you know, I think I have to rethink my strategy on this case. So. As, uh, as an attorney who as attorney who does a lot of work with insurance companies and who also really likes trial, I hate it when they do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're talking jury analytics with the makers of Predict, Sean Denon and Pete Mansman. Stick around for more. Thank you for listening to the Legal Technology Review. If you enjoy this podcast, please share us on social media or email to your friends, colleagues, or whomever you think could benefit from a little more technology in their lives. We don't accept paid sponsorship on the Legal Technology Review, so your personal recommendation will always be our best advertising, and we can't do it without you. So when I first heard about the product, one of the questions that I had was, is this something that runs the risk of, of almost you know, doing exactly what lawyers are not allowed to do, which is promising results? And it sounds to me like, the information that you give is shows trends and shows indications, but what, what you're really, you know, one of the biggest things you're able to do is you're able to say, okay, this segment of the population is much more likely to, you know, to immediately agree with this perspective or immediately disagree with this perspective, which gives the, you know, gives any attorney both an indication of who to keep and who not to keep, but also what specific topics they need to work harder on. Yeah, I, I, that's absolutely right. And, and, even beyond that, it starts to identify for you, all right, well, if, if this particular fact of the case, for instance, is really resonating with someone who identifies himself as an extroverted feeler, just one of the personality type, but somebody who's an introverted thinker is only going to be convinced by, you know, hard scientific evidence that comes through the, the facts of this particular witness, you know then that, hey, you're going you're gonna to already have people who are, are on being driven by their compassion for the plaintiff who's, and, and I really need to hammer home with this witness um, to make sure that I get that other uh, population center on, on board as well. And it really gives you the dynamics of seeing, you know, what it is you have to do to get the most people in agreement about the facts of your case. And, and it's, it's really interesting because, you know, w when you look at all these different trends and, and the demographic profiles of all these people that, that come into play, 
Um, you know, we, we know for each of these Delphi group members, even though they're anonymous, they're given a number, but we know very specific information about them, like what, what their occupation is, age, race, religious affiliation, IQ. And so when we look at the trends that come out of this, we know how population groups are going to potentially react based upon these sample people who are coming out of this Delphi group. That ties it all together and allows us to have a higher predictive element. And it's, it's like anything else, you know, you're, you're, a lot of times it's validation of what you already know, which is, you know, this is my strongest and weakest parts of my case, but it puts some, um, uh, it, it puts some numbers around those. And, you know, one thing I think could be really valuable is you can very clearly see the impact of emotion and lemonade and whether or not a fact gets in the case or not. Um, you can run it with and without that fact and see what the difference is. Um, how valuable could it be to understand that how critical that motion in limine is to the value or winnability of a case. There's all kinds of ways that this can be used and matching up jurors and looking at jury pools and understanding what's the best uh, jury group for you um, also is a way because you now understand which ones are going to be more likely to find in your favor versus others. That strikes me as, as interesting and also as very important because I don't know if you've, if in your experience you've dealt with this, uh, Peter, I'm sure that you you have, and you can at least sympathize from your observation. Is a lot of trial lawyers tend to be fairly self-confident. Um, I'd say egotistical is well greater than the general population, anyways. Yeah, um, higher a higher rate of incident. But I've yeah you know, I've talked to a lot of lawyers who, and I actually I really like jury selection. I, I enjoy it quite a lot because there are, I mean th there are a lot of things you can do. One of my Favorite stories about John Edwards before he became a politician and then whatever subhuman form he took after that happened. Um, you know, his, his openings and closings when I was in law school in, the, in 2005, 2004 to 2007 were the gold standard. But every single person I talked to who saw him in trial said he could have stood up and said, hey, I'm, I'm just going to say my client deserves a lot of money. And the jury was going to give it to him because he won jury selection. And most people think that jury selection is about you know, weeding out the people who can't be impartial so you get an impartial jury, which is a bunch of crap because jury selection is about getting rid of the few people you absolutely can't have on the jury and then biasing the rest of the jury as much in your favor as possible. Right. Now, a lot of lawyers do that really badly. I've seen some lawyers who've done a lot of trials who do that really badly. And so they, you know, sadly, it's also the ones that think they do it well. What kind of resistance have you run into when it comes to, I know what this type of juror is going to do with this kind of case? You know, most of the time, my experience has been our clients are deathly afraid of that jury because they, they've had such unpredictability in, in how some results have come out that, you know, that becomes the black hole that they're afraid of. Or you'll hear it all the time. We might have, you know, everybody agreeing with us in the box, and then you get that one dominant personality back in the jury room that overtakes everything, and it doesn't matter. You know, they're gonna they're gonna dominate and convince everybody else, and and it, it you know, that that to me is one of the big areas where I think they they fear the most, and they're just going by feel and judgment at that point as to who's the best or worst um, jury members for their pool based upon experience. And some, some people are better at it than others. I mean, certainly and some people may be more in tune to that than others. But, you know, again, if, if you believe in some of the science that, that people are going to tend to react different ways based upon um, specific items in their backgrounds um, that, that are, are going to cause them to act similarly to other people, um, you don't need a whole lot of data points to, to predict how somebody's going to react. 
and generally speaking, at least up in Pennsylvania, the voir dire questions you're allowed to know are enough to get a psychological profile on somebody that you can match up um, to somebody who took the predict process and say, that's a good or bad juror for me. Um, and interestingly, you can also find out, and it's largely driven by occupation, which type of people are going to be the most dominant personalities on a potential jury pool and therefore who are, have a higher probability of being the four people. And it's a lot, it's a lot more concise than you would, would imagine. Um, we all have it in our heads that we're so unique and independent and, you know, each one of us is a different snowflake. But the truth is that we're a lot more similar than, than I think we, we like to realize sometimes. Well, you know what's funny? And, and I like to, you know, when, when I, when I was in front of a jury, I always, I always try to approach the concept is that people are going to be primarily different. But my wife actually works uh, for Kellogg's and does data analytics for them. And there is apparently, Nielsen has put this together, the, the company that decides what TV shows you watch. Um, they they uh, have established this whole thing. There are 17 unique types of customer based on which one you are. My wife could tell you exactly where you're going to go when you walk into the grocery store to when you leave. And I was like, okay, obviously that's an oversimplification. So she pulls up the chart and she says, you're this one. And I read through and I'm like, yeah, you know exactly where I'm going as soon as I said <laughs> the grocery store. It really is one of those things where you behavior is something that, yes, people have unique triggers for various behavior, but once your triggers are set, there's only a certain number of things that are likely to influence you and there's only a certain number of combinations of those things. And I think once lawyers who, ha who resist this you know, concept sort of understand that a little bit better, and the sad part is they probably just need to be shown it. So, like Peter, what happened? What happened to you is when the opposing counsel saw how well it worked. That's when they're going to really kind of get into that. Thanks for listening to the Legal Technology Review podcast. More coming up next. If you're enjoying this podcast, head over to iTunes and look up the Legal Technology Review or the Cyber Advocate. Go ahead and leave us a rating and review. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Legal Technology Review Podcast and never miss an episode on tools and technology for lawyers and legal service professionals. Now, what? Give me a few examples of the of the applications you've found spe specific applications you've used this for. So certainly, you know, the main thrust of our product offering right now is to. Um, determine the winnability of your case, the potential value of the case, and the strengths and weaknesses of, of individual elements of the case, driven by questions that you want to know in the survey. And so that tends to be the starting point. And like with most things, it seems our early adopters are primarily, um, are primarily the plaintiff's attorney um, because they have more control. They tend to have more at risk on these cases. And they're going to use it, and they're using it to help determine whether they're getting a good settlement offer or not. So that right now seems to be the thrust of the main, and it makes sense. But we're also, you know, seeing that, you know, you get insurance companies or self-insureds that are looking and saying, all right, well, what, you know, what is my exposure here? That's the main thing that most people are looking for. What am I risking by pushing this forward? That, by far, is what most people are using this for. This same process, though, has also been used in jury selections, as I mentioned before. So if you have a jury pool and you, you have those basic data points on them, you can highly predict um, who's, who's going to be good or bad for your potential facts in your case. And interestingly, we've had, had people come to us and say from the insurance industry, hey, could I use something like this to help you know, potentially establish what a policy should look like, you know, yeah. what a deductible should be. You want to measure it 
this is probably the best way for measuring how human beings are going to react to a certain set of factors. And so sky's the limit in what this type of stuff can be used for. And Brian, just, just to add on to that, I mean, we've seen things, you know, and in, in actually in one really large case, um, they were trying to determine which attorney should be the lead attorney and, and what should be the presenting attorney and who's going to present in court. And we literally ran one where, you know, there was a, a short video clip of each person and their presentation style and pictures and everything about them. And they were really trying to measure the likability across the group of who should be the person that's going to go up and, and present that case. So, um, you know, as Pete said, we've seen it with very specific things about very specific facts in cases, but also things like, uh, you know, people have asked um, if, if this is a good tool, you know, on the plaintiff side of the bar, you're going to your client and you're trying to convince them that, hey, we just got a fantastic settlement offer. You know, um, we should really consider taking this, you know, and, and that's very it's very subjective, you know, they, they could be self-serving in that and, and the client, you know, we all have, have know that there's many difficult clients out there that hear, hear a million dollar settlement, which, you know, they were told that there's a potential of a 750, they hear a million and they go, well, can it be two million? It's like, well, you know, so I think it's something that they can use as a guide to and say, well, listen, we've done this research, this is what it's came back with. As you can see, our settlement offer is higher than what people are predicting if this thing actually goes to court and there's much more expense. So this is a great offer. Um, and, uh, you know, one other thing that, um, that uh, Brian, actually you and I were talking offline a little bit about that I, that I wanted to go into is the area of litigation funding. Yeah. You know, sometimes people are going out and, and obviously, especially with smaller firms and everything, they're taking on large cases, but they simply don't have the funding to do it solely on their own. And, you know, is this another tool that could be used for that uh, to go out and seek that funding and, and, you know, help them position that and say, listen, this is a high probability of winning this case and we want to take it all the way through and here's some fact points and data points to help support that versus, hey, I'm a great trial lawyer and I think I'm going to win. Yeah, that, that strikes me as a, as a, as a real opportunity. I, I'm, I'm one of those people who believes that uh, litigation funding, I mean, I work primarily on the defense side, but I, I've seen what I consider to be a lot of injustice delivered to people who simply can't afford and to, and to law firms that, that either can't afford or just don't have in their business model the idea of pushing significant litigation beyond the pre, really the pre-litigation phase. But I also have very serious questions about the uh, ethical conduct of some of these companies, just like I have about the ethical conduct of a lot of law firms. But I think that more information is never a bad thing, as long as it doesn't, what I call jokingly sometimes analysis paralysis. As long as it's not feeding that, I think the more data, the better. What I find interesting about the concept is that one thing you mentioned very early on in this interview is that you're able to sort of split test. In, in marketing, it's known as A-B testing. And it's interesting to me that it could apply to things other than just emotion and limine. In fact, I would suggest at least some of my clients would really like to use is, okay, is there a value of this case? prior to the end of discovery and after the end of discovery, especially in big cases where there are complex legal issues being litigated. Because one of the things that I've, I've found is that a lot of defendants really enjoy the idea of summary judgment until it gets about halfway through discovery, at which point they are either, I just want to settle it now, or I don't want to get anything bad in front of this judge. I just want to go on and move forward towards trial. Or they don't want to put necessarily the, the true effort that's necessary into briefing it and, and preparing for it and winning it. But if you could split test the potential value of even knocking out certain causes of action, tons of times you've got multiple causes of action. If you can get rid of 
unfair and deceptive trade practices, for example. You have, in most states, now wiped out a large claim for attorney's fees, potentially wiped out treble damages, and so you're talking about the value of the case being significantly different, but you add unfair and deceptive trade practices to anything, and the jury will look at the defendant worse. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what trend I would anticipate is that people run something like this much earlier in the discovery process to understand, you know, it might be just as important of saying, hey, I really need to know which factors are going to be the most contended or, or contentious in this case or the ones that are, are really going to drive potential value or winnability, and therefore I'm going to invest my resources and experts that are going to help me the most on those. Um, so, you know, again, all kinds of different ways of just sort of guiding guiding you along the way to say, hey, you know, I'm, I have a better way of predicting how, how somebody's going to react to where we are in the case at this point. So we think that the sky's the limit. We're at the, the front edge of how, how this type of data could be used. And, you know, our mission right now is to, to get really good at delivering on that, um, deliver on this piece that people are asking for right now. But, um, you know, continue listening to our clients and hear, hear where, where they take us next because um, I'm sure it's going to be places we're not even thinking about right now. You're listening to the Legal Technology Review Podcast. Stick around because we'll be right back. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Legal Technology Review on any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for the Legal Technology Review or the Cyber Advocate. You can also get all the latest on tools and tech for legal service professionals at www.thecyberadvocate.com. It's definitely a fascinating topic. I'm a, I'm a big statistics, uh, statistics nut, so it's, I could talk about this for quite a while. And Sean, I know the first time we, we actually spoke about this, we had about a good 15-minute conversation just about statistical relevance and standard deviations. So <laughs> I know this is, this is uh, something that fits into your wheelhouse. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think uh, back to your point earlier, Brian, and, and Pete touched on it. You know, we, we obviously do get the questions of, like, well, how does this guarantee the result or something like that? The simple answer is it doesn't. You know, it's it's like anything else. You know, you can spend $30,000 on a mock trial and see a deliberation and have a completely separate group of people actually come into the trial and have a completely different result. I, I think the key thing to, to keep in this is that it is information and, and it's statistically valid. You know, it's it's not just the opinion of some random people that you just randomly selected. You know, there is modeling and there is different measures in place that make this statistically valid. So while it's just an additional information source and piece of information, I like to think that it's, it's a very strong piece of information because there is backing behind it. It's not just a, a, an opinion. And, you know, I was, I was talking one time with an attorney and, you know, they were really questioning the idea of, I know a lot of people when they're looking at mock juries and they always think of like, all right, well, I have to go to the specific state and city and town to run my mock jury and go do it there and everything like that. And, and you know, I, I understand why, and I understand why they would do that. And, you know, if you're, if you're really interested in seeing the way a group in, you know, middle of nowhere Alabama is going to deliberate a certain set of facts or something, yeah, I think there's a, a very valid point for wanting to do that. But I think when you try to tie that to, well, this is representative of the jury that's going to show up the day that we have jury selection, I think it's totally invalid. Because quite frankly, you know, Brian, you're probably not going to focus groups every Tuesday and Thursday night of your, you know, your time. You're, you're going home and you're spending time. And, and quite, you are representative of a potential juror in, in whatever jurisdiction that you live in. So 
Exactly. Um, I guess that guy will get kicked off any jury before it ever comes to the, the well, yeah, that's the, the, the big start, of it, which annoys the hell out of me because, damn it, I want to sit on a jury. I know, I know. We know all the buzzwords. That's the problem. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, I just think that, you know, again, it all depends on what information you're seeking. And, and if it's very specific to I want to see what these people are going to do or how these people are going to react, geography is not what's really driving that, you know, because, you know, you're going to get a, a – I joke with Pete all the time. I said, yeah, when I was back in college, I, I played football, and I loved going to focus groups on a weekend because it's an extra 100 bucks in your pocket, you know, and you can't play sport. You can't have a job when you're playing sports. So uh, so things like that. But, you know, the reality was is, like, is that true representative, or was it me and six of my football buddies going to a focus group to make 100 bucks one night, you know, so. Well, there was, there was a line from, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of the writer Aaron Sorkin, but he had a TV show called Studio 60, and one of the episodes is, they're standing there watching a focus group behind a, behind one of those screens, and one of the, the president of the network says, this is the most worthless information. It's a bunch of unemployed screenwriters who know I'm back here who are hoping I'm going to hire them, and guess what? They're going to stay unemployed screenwriters. <laughs> it's, right. your, your, your pool is, is going to be what you get. And that's the other thing. Is the only thing you're really going to get out of a local population, which is to know exactly what words to pronounce a certain way to avoid pissing them off, which does not lack value. Sure. <laughs> I've, I've seen a Harvard-educated trial lawyer get slapped all over the courtroom, really, basically, because she came down and she, she's practicing in Charlotte, but went out to uh, Rowan County, North Carolina, which is spelled R-O-W-A-N. She did not pronounce it Rowan County. She didn't know. <laughs> but, I mean, beyond that, I don't, you're right. Local is not going to, because all local is going to do is local is going to give you, you know, 12 or 24 or however many your number is, anecdotal stories. Exactly. That's all you're going to get. You simply do not have time to do the statistical modeling that you're talking about. Well, and, and the thing is, the commonality amongst people in Rowan County isn't that they just live in Rowan County. It's usually that people with similar backgrounds and demographics group together. That's why they're there. And once you understand what that pattern is, you have a much, it's, it's something else that tends to drive their, their thinking process. And, and you also find that when you have personality groups that are in a population that's very uh, assimilated and similar, those different personality groups start to act that same way too because that's their community. And so that becomes even more predictive when you start looking at the census data and Department of Labor statistics about different locations. You, you can see what the makeup is of them and, and understand, you know, our are they an anomaly of such a congruous group of people that you, you need to put some value in that they're, they're going to react differently than a common general population? And it goes back the same way. It's like, you know, a lot of times those communities that live together, they're all walking through the, through the grocery store in the same path. You know, it's just how we are. We're, we like to live near people who are similar to us. And similar experiences breed also, you know, similar reaction. Try to defend any railroad company in Virginia, as you find common experience can be a kind of a bitch. Nice. Sean, Peter, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk about this. It's a, I think it's a fascinating product. I think it has, just like any good idea, it's got a lot of really great potential applications that who knows what you'll hear next week. It's got to feel pretty good. Yeah, well, when we figure out uh, what the next great thing is, we'll, we'll let you know and do a follow-up. Yeah, that, that, that is one thing that I have let everyone know that I've interviewed on this podcast. It, it is actually requirements. I, I just kind of read it into all of the uh, verbal agreements to, to appear. That, But uh, then again, I had, uh, I don't know if you've followed 
about any of Ravel Law. Uh, I had Daniel Lewis on, and I, I asked him point blank about you know what they had coming up, anything. And he told me some interesting stuff. And the very next week, they announced that they were digitizing Harvard's law library. And I'm like, dude, you couldn't give me a heads up. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't get to break this. Come on now. Um, right. But yeah. we'll, we'll so, make sure that you uh, break the next big application of the Nick, right? Well, I appreciate it. Sean, Peter, thank you for uh, joining us here on the Legal Technology Review. Thank you, Brian. Great. Thank you. All right. That is it for our episode of the Legal Technology Review. You can check out Predict at the Precise Company's website. It's precise-law.com. You can also see wonderful headshots of all the employees, including Sean and Peter, so you can go ahead and put a face with the voices that you heard. And, you know, I didn't do a very good job introducing each one as they spoke, so you can guess which one is which. Remind you once again, go ahead, uh, subscribe to the Legal Technology Review on any of your favorite podcast apps through iTunes and share us as freely and often as possible with anyone you meet. Random people on the street works. It's good. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, this, On behalf of the Cyber Advocate, this is Brian Folk, and this has been the Legal Technology Review. We'll see you next time.